I want to encourage all of us, you know, let's be sure that we help people. Amen? That we pour into people around us. They're folks with dreams and plans and ideas. And as members of the body, as we talked about last week, living in community, sometimes you have exactly what that person needs for them to be encouraged. Sometimes you got the insight that person needs to go to the next level. And, but if you live isolated from one another, you know, you waste the equity. You, 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 you squirrel it away, and the kingdom can be so much, so much better. And I think God's doing some of that stuff in our church. He's helping us to be really kingdom people, not just to be concerned about, quote, our agenda and what we're going to do. I've discovered in my life, the Lord's been teaching me this for over 40 years. Crawford, if you forget about yourself, I'll make what I called you to do uh, more impactful than you ever imagined. But if you just keep trying to protect what you're doing, you're going to like restrict that as well as helping somebody else. So let's be, uh, let's be the people of God who, who do that. Now, I got a long ways to go, a short time to get there, and I really do need to land a plane today on time because of our serve fair. And I really want you to know that the, 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 uh, the follow-up, the, the impact, and, as well as the application of this message is out on the field today. And I say this at the very beginning, um, you know, we're not pushing to serve fair so that we can have, we can say to one another, oh my, look at all the people that came by and so that I'm over 40 missionary mission partners who are out there on the field can say, oh, look at all the people who came by. That's not why we're doing this. We're doing this because, you know, God has some things that he may want to say to all of us and we just don't want to put a lid on that. There are strategic opportunities and things that we can come alongside of and help, and it will be a blessing to us, and maybe God will say some very specific things to us. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, we're on our DNA series, and again, just to remind us, we're talking about, well, who are we as a church? Who are we as Fellowship Bible Church? What do we represent? Who are we as a church? And again, I, I, I'm, you know... It's not that we judge other people. It's not that we, we say, you know, we're better than somebody else. No, that's not it at all. Other churches do different things. And different is not wrong. It's just different. But what is our address? What are we really all about? And so we, we, we focused on a mission statement. And this is a, this is a summary. It, it comes across maybe very clear and simple. Hopefully it's clear and simple. But you got to understand, we wrestled with this great deal. Uh, we wanted to come across with something that was not sloganish, not a little, 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 little tagline, but something that was real, that summarized what we are all about and the grand mission of, of what believers are all about in the New Testament. And so here's our mission statement. I want us to say it all together. We exist to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus who love God passionately and love others unconditionally. Now, there's a whole lot of biblical theology behind that statement, a whole lot of it. There's a relational side of things. We love God passionately and others unconditionally. That's the relational side of it. However, if you just park right there, you're going to be a relational cul-de-sac. Your Christianity is going to be very ingrown and restricted. The truth of our Christianity is that, yeah, we do that, but there is a for what? There is a verb position. Why do we do it? Well, to make disciples of Jesus, to make disciples of Jesus. So there's the great command and the great commission. That represents the river, what we're flowing through, what's going on here at our church. 
And I suggested that there are four big tributaries that fill that river, that flow into that river. We've talked about two of them already, the Word of God, and then last week, biblical community. And I want to underscore this. I, want to, I really want us to grab a hold of this. The Bible knows nothing of a private Christianity. You do know that, don't you? The Bible knows nothing of a private Christianity. We cannot be like Jesus without living in community with one another. And so the church, community, uh, 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 being together is necessary for our spiritual health and for our development. Christians who, are, who shrink back end up being very dysfunctional. God never meant it that way. We belong to one another. We're placed in a body. And that's not just to make an expression to the world, it's also for our own particular health. Now today, I want to talk about intentional service. That's the second part, or the, I'm sorry, the third part, the third river, our tributary that flows into this river, intentional service. One of the problems that we have when we read the Bible is that I think sometimes we separate things that should not be separated. In the Bible, and you're going to think I'm crazy on this, but hang in there with me because perhaps you've not heard this. In the Bible, in the Bible, salvation is always connected with service. They're not separate. They're always connected with service. Now, you don't get saved by doing service. Salvation in the Bible is always connected with service. Some of the greatest uh, salvation passages in the scripture, when you read it in its broader context, it's, it's right there. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10, for example. And I will make this acknowledgement. You do know that the, uh, the verse numerations are not in the original text. That's a translator's tool to give verse 8, verse 9, verse 10. So there's one thought that Paul is unpacking when he puts those three verses together. Typically, we'll quote verses 8 and 9 and leave verse 10 off. But listen to the whole thought that Paul gives. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. Then what does he say in verse 10? We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has provided or prepared ahead of time that we should walk in them. Paul connects, Paul connects my relationship with Christ, my relationship with him, with service. He says, he says, if I have experienced reconciliation, then I share reconciliation. Or if I've experienced him in salvation, then I walk in the good works that he has prepared for me. The expression where his workmanship is the Greek word poema. Uh, It could have been translated masterpiece, masterpiece. Now, I can't draw to save my life. I cannot. I've, I've flunked every art class I've ever taken. And they probably gave me D's and C's to get me on. And if, it, if it's beyond stick figures, I'm lost. But what I do like to do is that my grandkids, when they come to visit every once in a while, especially the little ones, I kind of like going out to these restaurants that have kitty menus. There's a couple of reasons for that. It's cheaper. That's, that does help. But, but the other thing I like, you're going to... You're gonna, I also like the kitty minions because they got like this, you know, this, this kind of like drawing by numbers thing. You know, I keep saying, well, maybe Mimi will put my picture up on the refrigerator too, like she does yours. And uh, so, oh, <laughs> I'm going, I, you know, sometimes illustrations sound better in my study. I, I'm, I, <laughs> so if, if, if you follow, if you draw the numbers in sequence, 
you connect them all, there is this portrait, there is this picture. Might be an elephant, it might be a kangaroo, it might be a giraffe, it might be a pancake, or whatever it might be, but you draw it in sequence. And I think this is the, this is the idea behind what, uh, what Paul is saying here. We've come to know Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. We've given ourselves to him. And he says, we are in Christ Jesus. We are those of us who are in Christ Jesus. We, 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 we are his masterpiece. And that there are good works that he's prepared for us ahead of time that we should walk in them. When we keep responding to God concerning the good works that he has for us, we become his portrait. But the picture's never complete until we do it all. Until we do it all. Now, what's behind all of this? Why, why, why this emphasis? Well, our good works not only glorify God, but our good works model the kingdom. Model the kingdom. And by the way, I'm going to make this connection, but when we get to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, you see why I make this connection. You see, it's not just any old good works. It's the good works that he's prepared ahead of time. And even in context, the good works that he's prepared ahead of time, they're always focused on the cross and what God's primary mission and ministry is in the world. And that is offering the hope and love of the Lord Jesus. So what we do, they're not just arbitrary good works, they're good works that God has for me, but those good works are always focused around the cross. What God is doing in, in human, human history. Now, we need to be intentional, especially when it comes to sharing the gospel. And that's what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse 10 and going through verse 21. Now, let me just say this quickly. Obviously, in context here, the primary application of the passage is that Paul is really defending his apostleship. And so these primary motivations that we're going to look at here, reasons why we should be intentional in service, technically speaking, has more to do with Paul, but by way of implication and application, they're directed toward us as well. Paul outlines in these, in these verses three reasons why we need to be intentional in our service. And let me just give them to you, and then we'll make some comments about them. The first reason why we need to be intentional in our service is because we are accountable. Because we are accountable. That's the first reason. The second reason why we need to be intentional is because we've been transformed. And the third reason why we need to be intentional in our service is because we represent him in the world or we are his change agents. We're accountable. We've been transformed. And we are his change agents. And because of that, we have to be intentional about our service. Now, the first thing he says, we, we're intentional about our service because, because we are accountable. I, you know, as you look at verses uh, um, 10 through 11, actually, beginning in verse 9, verse 9 through 11, the apostle Paul is saying, hey, look, you know, this is not just a nice little gig or nice little volunteer thing or something that's nice for you to do. No, we, we, we serve intentionally because we are accountable. When our oldest son, Brian, uh, uh, finished his freshman year in college, he went to, went to undergrad school up in Philadelphia. He came back home. I'll never forget him. He came back home and uh, came in the house. And, of course, you know, we're all very happy to see him. And, 
you know, mama was fixing his favorite meal and spoiling the old knucklehead and doing all that stuff for him and everything. So we chatted for a while and, and it was in May and the grass had grown in the, in the front yard, and, well, actually front and backyard. And I said, after we chatted, he got settled in this kind of thing. I said, Brian, I, I've got to go out for a little bit here, but I, I want you to cut the grass. And he looked at me, I guess he had gone off to college and fairly independent, he didn't cut nobody's grass. So he said, oh, dad, I don't do grass. Y'all know me. <laughs> so I started laughing. I said, yeah, okay. I said, really? You don't do grass anymore, do you? Where are you going to sleep this summer? Where are you going to eat? I mean, you can make that choice. You don't do grass. But you do understand once you made that choice, you've also narrowed went out down some other things. I said, and I said, and, and by the way, do you do college? <laughs> he said, yeah, I think I know where the lawnmower is. I said, I think you do too, don't you? <laughs> There's never a point at which we're not accountable. I don't know where we get this. Well, I do know where we get it from. Sometimes we present a brand of Christianity that is not really accurate. And our desire to kind of like uh, uh, get away from this oppressive performance orientation toward Christianity, we have said some terribly wrong things about God. And we've let people believe some terribly wrong things about God terribly wrong things about God. We have sold a brand of Christianity that takes accountability off the table, and nowhere in the Bible are we not accountable. Grace does not mean that you're not accountable. And Paul is getting ready to spell this out quite clearly here. He talks about our accountability, and there are like three banners underneath all of this. The first one is this, is that we live to please God. And I want you to go back to verse 9. Verse 9 really introduces the whole issue of accountability. Paul, up until that time, is talking about the fact that we're going to be translated into his very presence, that we're going to be in the very presence of God one day, that that we're going to be changed, and that this tent, this is just a temporary tent here, we're going to have a permanent home in heaven, and we're going to see him. Notice what he says in verse 9. He says, so whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. The pleasure of God uh, strongly suggests accountability. Accountability. What Paul is talking about is that, look, you've been purchased with a price and you will be in heaven one day. He's really talking about the lordship of Christ. So down here, down here, Crawford, it's not you and Jesus and you use Jesus to help please you. It's not just your relationship with Jesus where he comes alongside of you and holds your hand and he's nice to you. No, no. When you surrender your life to Christ, it's not a joint partnership with Jesus, but he is Lord. You are in this position. And because you're going to see him one day, you live to please him. Now, that really sets him up to the, uh, sets it up for the second banner that he slides into. It's also very logical. No, we make it our aim to please him. And then he says in verse 10, because we remember where it ends. Listen to what he says in verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or bad. You go, what? Judgment? Isn't he talking about unbelievers? No, he's not. Read the context. He's talking about Christians. He's talking about us standing before the judgment seat of Christ. 
You say, well, wait a minute, Crawford. Didn't he, didn't, didn't, didn't he say in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ? That's right. We're not condemned for our sins and our eternal salvation will never be judged. But he's talking about the issue of rewards. There's a difference here. No, it's not about our salvation, but it is about our responsibility. We don't talk a lot about that. But it is about our responsibility. He says, no, 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 Crawford. The thought of standing before the law, Lord should do something to us. We'll stand before him. He unpacks that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15, when he talks about our works, 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 not salvation, but our works being tried by fire. If they're self-serving, that don't honor and glorify God, he puts them in the category of the perishable stuff, wood, hay, and stubble. If they honor him and they reflect his lordship and they please him, in terms of being obedient to him, then the gold, silver, and precious stone, the stuff that lasts, that lasts forever. So we remember where it all ends. We stand before him. But the third header under this motivation is that we face our moment with urgency, therefore. You see where he's going. No, we make it our aim to please him. The reason why we make it our aim to please him, oh, by the way, by the way, we must all stand before him. Because we're all standing before him, we live our life with urgency. That's what he says in verse 11. Uh, hmm. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Now, some are very nervous about that expression, fear. What are you talking about fear? Does this fear belong to unbelievers? No, that's dishonest with the text because he's not talking about non-Christians. He's talking about Christians. You say, Crawford, Christians should fear God? Absolutely. Well, isn't that a sort of a worship fear? No, not altogether. What he's saying is this. The fact that we're going to stand in God's presence should fill us with a sense of awe and a sense of accountability. That's what he's saying here. Now, 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 I, I want you to jump over. I'm going to come back to verse 14 in a minute, but I want you to go to verse 14 because I want you to see the two motivations that he's talking about that should be in the heart of every follower simultaneously. Verse 14 says, for the love of Christ controls us. Okay, the two motivations that we should have in our hearts as followers of Jesus. Now, I'm going to tell you, we don't preach about this much. You ain't going to hear this one on Christian radio a lot, okay? But the two motivations that should be in the hearts of every believer... Now, all of us want to talk about God's love, but two motivations should be in the heart of every believer should be fear and love. Fear and love. Now, listen, let me bottom line this. All accountability, in order for it to be accountability, has to have an element of fear. Now, you think about that. All accountability, in order for it to be real accountability, has to have an element of fear, element of fear. If you give consequences to your children, that's an element of fear. I don't want to cheat on my wife for two big reasons. The larger reason is I know she loves me implicitly. I don't want to hurt her. 
I don't want to break our marriage vows, but neither do I want God to take his hand off of my heart and life. So there, there, there's healthy fear. You have a child. You tell him, look, you better be in the house. Look, I, you, you can go out, but be in the house by 11 o'clock tonight. And the homeboy comes tooling at 2 o'clock. He said, okay, well, you don't want to see the car for the next month. And so he doesn't do that again. And so God has placed that in us, but God says, I'm the same way. Who said that fear is not a motivation? Who said that? Be careful of squirrely ideas about grace. So no, 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 Crawford, you, 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 you're going you're to stand before me. Love and fear are part of a healthy parent-child relationship. By the way, if you don't have consequences for your children, if you don't raise them with a sense of consequences, you're going to have a kid laying on your couch eating Doritos and watching reruns of the Cosby show until they're 70 years old, can't find a job. Why? Because he knows you're going to let them do it. And I think this is the spirit behind this. Yeah, I love you. Yes, 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 yes. But there's fear. And there's love. And that's part of your relationship with me. Without the fear, there's no sense of accountability. And that's part of it. So, and then there's this expression. <laughs> we persuade others. We persuade others. Now, although he doesn't mention this, I really believe what Paul is hinting at is this. Look, 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 look. If God judges his own people, then what will happen to the lost? That's behind this whole idea. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna, we, we as his followers, we're going to stand before the judgment seat, but we're not going to be judged in terms of our salvation. That's been taken care of at the cross. But it will be with regard to our responsibility and the calling and being faithful to what God has given us to do and the mission that he's placed in our hearts and in context, this ministry of reconciliation. You know, if God's going to do that for us, then what do you think he's going to do for those who are lost? Paul says, I persuade them because I know what's going to happen. What's going to happen? Well, I want you to turn back to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20 gives us a vision of what will happen to every person that doesn't know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And for those of you who may be here, who have yet to say yes to Jesus, you need to understand this is the, why, this is the reason why we border on being obnoxious with you and sharing the gospel of Christ. This is the reason why we take pains at doing this. This is the reason why we perhaps over-communicate what it means to have a relationship with him. Why? Because the Bible tells us where it's all going to end. Listen to these words. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were open. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Now get this line. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord... We persuade men. 
As I said, I think we are far too casual in our communication of the gospel. This is the end game of all of humanity. That anyone that does not know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, when they die, there are no other opportunities. So Paul says, well, why are we intentional about our service? Why? Well, because we're held accountable. Secondly, we're intentional about our service because we have been transformed. We're changed. Yeah, this is not just some little gig or some little thing that it's nice for us to do, um, you know. No, we have been transformed. And it's actually, as you get into this section, um, 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 verses 14 through 17, Paul is appealing to the wonderful experience of the grace of God that we all have had. And that why would you want to share that experience with others? That's what he's talking about in this next section. Uh, We're driven by Christ's love. That's what verse 14 is about. He says, for the love of Christ controls us. Controls us. Circle that word control. Uh, It's hard to translate the Greek word here, and I'm sure the translators probably did the very best they could. In fact, you'll hear my fumbling attempts at it. It's a difficult uh, word to translate. That word controls comes from a Greek word that's pronounced synekine, synekine. It's only used one other place in the entire New Testament. It's only used twice in the New Testament. The only other place that it's used is over in Philippians chapter 1, verse 23. And synekine, the best... uh, it's hard to define. It, 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 it means it, it's more than just control. Um, the word means to hold together. Uh, but not in a passive thing. It's not something holding me together. It, it, it's, it's the idea of the controlling factor in our lives. It, it is, it is, it is that, which, that which is dominant about me. It is everything about me that holds me together, and all that orients me in life. All that orients me in life. He says, the love of Christ is everything to you. It's your total orientation. It's why you do what you do. It's why you still are here. It's why you have that job. It's why you interact with, it's why you're in that neighborhood. It's why you go to that school. It's, it's, it's why you are here. It holds everything in your life together. And to experience that love is not just about me being forgiven of my sins, although that's big. It was meant to be baptized in it. That all of my life is conditioned by it, led by it. It permeates everything. Holds us together. But also he connects a thought that Paul does this a lot. He connects our personal death with our salvation. Notice, look, the verse says, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. That one has died for all, therefore all have, have died. All have died. 
He died that we might die to ourselves. And if you write in your Bible, I want you to put next to that verse, Romans 6. Romans 6. See, what Paul says is this, for authentic followers of Jesus Christ, if we come in contact with his love, it drives us toward selflessness. That there is an acknowledgement and a decision, an acknowledgement and a decision. What, what do you mean by that? We acknowledge, and this is hard to explain. I've never heard anybody explain this adequately. I've read the books on the crucified life and all of this stuff, but I've yet to read an adequate description of the mystery of our dying with Jesus. It is a mystery. But at the point of salvation, when we've said yes to Jesus Christ, we not only receive forgiveness of sin, but we're to die to our self-centeredness, to die to ourselves. There's something about me that died. So I'm to acknowledge that. But also there's a sense in which I need to decide every day. And that's what Paul means when he says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, for I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. There's a sense of decision about that every single day. And so when you put that together, Sinkine, Sinekine, the, 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 the controlling factor of the cross, the total orientation of the cross that holds me together, what he's really saying is that it's not Crawford's life that I'm, I'm proclaiming. It's the life of Jesus. It's the life of Jesus. Thus, he explains it in verse 15. He says that we then therefore gratefully surrendered. Verse 15 says, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised, was raised again. So we gratefully surrender. I serve you because it's right to serve you. I serve you because your cross changed everything about me. I, I, I serve you because it's what I'm born to do. I serve you because I'm not trying to make a statement with my life. As you've heard me say here, it's your autobiography that you're writing in human history. I can't get out of your way. Why? Because the cross has become everything. And then we've been given a new set of eyes. Verse 16 is an amazing, an amazing verse. Listen to what he says here. From now on, therefore, okay, for the love of Christ has totally reoriented me. I have died with him. Now, how do I view others? Listen to what he says. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. No one according to the flesh. Do you know what he's saying here? We see people the way Jesus sees them through the lens of the cross. That's what he means by that. That's what he means by that. This is typically Paul. Now, you, you, I want to encourage you, go back and read Ephesians 2 in its entirety. Paul has a progression. There are several texts that, that he does this with. When he talks about our salvation, he talks about our service, and then he talks about, then he talks about the ethnic diversity of this thing called the body of Christ. That's typically Pauline. 
There's neither therefore any Jew nor Greek, bond nor free. That's what he's talking about here. He's talking about, he's talking about the integrity of the gospel. And, and if I might say this, a number of years ago when I became convinced that this statement here, God began to work in my heart. I'm never to tolerate racism in my life or in the body of Christ because it doesn't tell the truth of the gospel. From now on, we see no one according to the flesh. Doesn't mean that there aren't cultural distinctions. That's not what he's talking about. But he's saying how the cross is a new point of reference. We see everybody. We see everybody as potential brothers and sisters in Christ. There is no room for exclusivity in the gospel. There is no room. There's no room for marginalizing people. Not if it's biblical gospel. No, 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 no. We, we don't see people the way they are. We see them uh, in light of what the blood of Jesus can do in them and through them and for them. Great illustration of this is Acts chapter 9 when Paul became a follower of Jesus. You know, Paul was a bad dude. He killed Christians, persecuted them, you know, herded them off the jail. And he gets saved. Now, it's almost humorous when you read this account in Acts 9. Here, Ananias is praying, and, and, and God is speaking to Ananias, and God says, Ananias, Ananias, I'm sending you Saul. And I, who? Now, I know you know everything, but in case this one slipped away from your omniscience, uh, you, you know who he is. You know he did. No, no, I'm sending him to you. Send him to you. And I would beg of you and plead with you, along with me, to search our hearts, to always keep bringing to the cross our little cultural preferences, our little ethnic biases, our little ways of editing out people who are uh, keeping them at arm's distance from us. Because according to this text, if we're totally oriented by the cross, if we're the peoples of God, we have a new set of eyes. We have a new set of eyes. He says we're a new creation, verse 17. We know this verse. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the love of Christ has totally reoriented me. Therefore, if anyone in Christ, he's a new creation. New creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. And obviously, this is brought about by the work of the Holy Spirit, the agent of regeneration and the giver of new life that we are totally, substantially new. And I, I, I want to encourage us to, to understand always that the power for us to change is within us. One of the problems that we have, the older we get, is that we've learned how to accommodate our nonsense. We've learned how to, you know, sort of like sanitize the mess in us. And it's really, it's really a struggle. You may not believe this. You lose the passion to embrace your transformation the older you get. New believers, you know, it's all new and they've seen the power of God and they've experienced his change and they, they've gotten over their lust and they've gotten over their alcohol or substance abuse or, or whatever it is and, and the sky's the limit. Then after a while, what ends up taking place is that you get into this little negotiated rhythm in your walk with Christ. You don't struggle with the same things that you used to struggle with anymore, but you got nasty attitudes. You still got a little temper. You still got the stuff that you accommodate. You still got this little critical spirit, but that's the sanitized stuff. And so you don't deal with that. But I would suggest to you that this, this verse, when he says, if any man be in Christ is a new creature, notice the tense of the verb. 
old things are passed away, but all things are constantly becoming new. And I think what Paul is saying by that, by using that tense, is that don't put the brakes on God's transforming work in your life. Who said you can't change at age 70 or 80 or 90? Who said that? Who said you can't overcome? Who said you can't overcome your temper? Who said you can't overcome your critical spirit? If you are in Christ, the resurrected Christ, the resurrection power of Jesus is living inside of us. You don't have to manage that sin that you've gotten accustomed with. You can get rid of it. And all of this, he's talking about the cross. And wonderfully, he says, because he's done all of this for you, Crawford, all of this for you, you should serve me with joy and great intentionality. And then the third one, third reason. We're intentional on a search because accountability, because we've been transformed. But thirdly, because we are change agents. Because we are change agents. Paul is almost poetic, and you, as you read this section of Scripture, this is what he's driving at. It's coming right down to here. It's like the grand crescendo of this great piece of music. He says that his mission, this mission that we're held accountable to, that we have experienced personally, that this mission, this mission of reconciliation, specifically, specifically establishing peace with God because of the blood of Christ, that it has been given to us. He says, he says, we're change agents because it is, number one, in us. Look at verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled unto himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Gave us the ministry of reconciliation. I want you to hear me on this. I want you to hear me on this. At the moment of salvation... He gave us this ministry. I don't want it. Well, if you don't, then you're not a follower. I don't want to do that. Well, not, he didn't ask you that, Crawford. Inherent in the gospel, inherent in my response to Christ, when I came to know him, he placed in me this ministry of reconciliation. He gave it to us. Have you ever been around someone who doubts their potential? Yeah, we all have. I remember a number of years ago, I'm, I'm thrilled this is, a, this is a good ending to this story. Um, there's, a, there's a guy that was in an organization I was very close to and uh, came from a real rough background. God did some miracles in his heart and life and he's so progressed and just a natural leader. But he's one of these guys that, you know, he's, so, he's sweetly humble, totally unimpressed with himself. Um, and never sought any position of leadership or influence whatsoever. Just so grateful to God for what he had done to him. May his tribe increase, by the way. Uh, I knew that they were going to challenge him for a major leadership role in this organization. And they did. And so he called me, and, he, and I was sort of mentoring him. He said, he said Crawford, I can't, you know where I came from. I can't do this. I said, get out of here. Everybody know, who knows you knows that God has laid his hand on you to do this. You have it, but I don't know. You have it in you. And he's soaring today. That's what Paul is saying. You, 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 you have in you that message that can change the world. Do you know that? It's in you. 
It's not, not Crawford. Not our staff. Not our, it's in you. If you've been to Calvary, that message is in you. It is absolutely, absolutely in us. But it's also entrusted to us. Notice the poetry here. He has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. And then verse 19, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message. I think he says, okay, it's in you, but I want to remind you, this is the most important message about your life. It is valuable. That's what he's saying. Do you know what you have been entrusted with? Do you know? Do, do you understand, Crawford, that you have the message, once again, that can change lives and the course of human history? One of the things I will often do when I share the gospel and it's getting to a point where that person wants to hear, I will say this. Suppose I told you how you can get rid of all of the guilt in your life and experience a peace that you never knew. That's not a sales job, that's true. And we have that message. It's not, obviously it's in here, but it's in here. That's the reason why Paul connects it with personal experience. You know, the love of Christ. If any man be in Christ, he's in a creature. From now on, we don't see. You've experienced it. It's in you. And then finally, he makes, he makes the declaration, our new assignment. It's found in verse 20. This actually is the climax. This message, that is this ministry that's in you, that's been entrusted to you, he says in verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. I really believe that Paul used this word because he knew during his time he was living in the Roman Empire. He knew about the control of the Roman Empire. In the Roman Empire, they had basically two kinds of provinces, two kinds of provinces, they had what they called a senatorial province. You know what the senatorial province is? The senatorial province were those, those, those areas that were close to Rome. They were peaceful. They were partners with Rome. Uh, it's much like Puerto Rico and the, and the U.S. Virgin Islands and, and that kind of area. They were just close. There was no, nothing going on. Ah, but then there were the imperial provinces. Now, the imperial provinces were dangerous. These people did not like being controlled by Rome. <laughs> And there was still a lot of stuff going on. Well, I think what Paul is saying to us by way of implication and a little bit of a historical context, if I could use the application, that we are ambassadors representing Christ in the imperial province of this world. It's hostile out there. Satan's alive and well out there. He doesn't want people to be set free. And although they are not, they are at war with God, we have that which will give them peace. Well, let me land the plane. On uh, Thursday, I got a call from my youngest son, Brendan, and uh, my kids filled me with stories about my grandkids. I, I tell you, I get I sermon illustrations that will last me forever. Well, Brendan called me Thursday morning. He actually said this to me. He said, Dad, 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 I, I got to give you a great illustration. I said, I can always use one, brother. And so he said, uh, I just came back from my breakfast date with Brianna. Brianna just turned 
just turned four last week. Just turned four. I just came back my breakfast date with Brianna. He said, we were, we were sitting around breakfast, and I said, uh, Bri, Bri, I want to talk to you about, about heaven. Let's talk about heaven. So Brendan started describing heaven and, and this kind of thing and how you get to heaven and all this stuff. And he said, Dad, she said to me, wow, Daddy. She gets really excited. Wow, Daddy, can you take me there? Can you take me there? That's what Paul is saying. You, you only have that job so you can take people to heaven. You're only living in that community so you can take people to heaven. You're only in that school so you can take people to heaven. He is placed in us the ministry of reconciliation. I began by saying that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. There are assignments that God has for us things that he wants us to pray about, ministries that he wants us to pray about, ministries that he wants us to give to financially, ministries that he may want us to come alongside of and experience what they're doing as a platform for us to be able to share the hope and love of the Lord Jesus. And so we have this serve fair. I just want you to spend a few minutes today to go out there, not just to encourage our ministry partners, although that's wonderful. We do need to do that for them to see us, let them know that we're praying for them. That, that's, that's a huge thing. But I want you to go out there, and as you walk around, you know, just to pray for them. You see their ministries. You see their tables. You see their information. God, lay your hand on them. God, bless them. God, meet their needs. God, open doors for them. But secondly, I want you to walk around and say, Lord, what would you have for me to do? Is there something more? Is there something more? Am I open to you? Do you want to use me in a different way? What do you want from my life? I'm yours. Let's stand together. and I'm going to pray, and then Richard's going to have about a minute of uh, instructions for us. And, uh, but let's pray together. Fellowship, I want to encourage us to keep viewing ourselves not the way the world describes Christians, but keep viewing ourselves simply and profoundly as those people who have been just captured and held delightfully imprisoned by the love of the Lord Jesus. That's what we're all about. And let's not make this stuff complicated. Father, I just want to thank you for... um, the folks that you've given here are for me to love and I feel their love for me and our love for you. Lord, we, we don't want to miss anything in our journey that you have for us. We don't want to be sidetracked. You told us that you're holding us accountable. You told us that uh, we need to remember that you have transformed us. And you told us that we're your change agents. You've never called us to do anything that you've not enabled us to do. And so that's where our comfort is. So Lord, dismiss us from this place. May we walk in your presence. Help us in all things we pray to honor you in Jesus' name. Amen.